One year, I kind of got an idea, you know, I want to try trap. I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down top. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thank you for tuning in. Great to have you here. We are brought to you by Cox Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com, the official trapping supply company of the Trapping Today podcast. Check these guys out. they got baits, lures, books, DVDs, traps, snares, everything you need to get going on the trap line. And guys, convention season is a thing of the past, at least for this summer, so you got to get trapping supplies somewhere. Check Cox Bros out. Uh, they're going to treat you good. We're also brought to you by OnX Maps. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS. Mark trap locations. Track your waypoints. Uh, run tracks. You can uh, find landowner information, aerial imagery, everything that you need, everything that you can get a GPS, and so much more. Onxmaps.com. Use the promo code TRAPTRAP to get 20% off of your first purchase. That's Onxmaps.com. What a great resource you ought to be using this if you're not on the trap line. Uh, check them out. All right, it is Independence Day, July 4th, as I record this, and uh, it's right in the middle of the summer. Not really a whole lot going on in the trapping world. Um, Not really much for trapping news. The fur market is still uh, in an incredibly uncertain time with this whole coronavirus thing going on, everything that's going on in uh, in the economy, uh, boy, it, it's really it's really unclear. Everything kind of happened at once, kind of the perfect storm here for this fur market. So if you've got fur, uh, you know, fur harvesters is talking about having an auction. They're planning on having an auction in August, assuming that things are in better shape and travel is opened up. But boy, this whole second wave or this second part of the first wave or whatever people are calling it now is pretty vicious. There's a lot of, of uh, virus spreading around and a lot going on. So uh, who knows, We a lot of these states might be shut back down again and we may not be having an auction. So anyway, uh, somebody asked me this week about storing fur. Get it in the freezer. Uh, get it in the freezer and if you can get it vacuum sealed or get it in some plastic bags and suck all the air out of it, as much air out of it as you can. Um, that's the best way to store fur right now uh, from, from your home. And uh, 
yeah, just uh, hang tight, hang tight. A lot of people, there are people that won't be trapping this year, this fall. So uh, that that's going to be, you know, it's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate to see, you know, there's, uh, it, you look at trends, like I look at trends on, on the website and stuff, and number of people that are visiting. The podcast listenership has actually stayed pretty steady, which is nice, but you know, website traffic is way down. People searching for trapping, people looking for fur market information. That stuff is all way down um, the past few months. So the uh, the low fur market is, is having an impact. Um, I know there's some trapping supply companies that are feeling the, the pain from this. Um, Cotsboro is doing great, but there's, you know, there's some like uh, Dakota Line just announced that they're going to stop uh, discontinue retail sales and just focus on on wholesale um so they're not they're not going to have a catalog anymore they're not going to going to um fulfill orders for for retail trapping supplies so that's a big change and I'm sure there's going to be more uh that more that that happen takes place and shakes up in the industry so something to keep an eye on but I still get emails from guys uh from you guys that are just getting into trapping or your um you made a life change and you finally have more time to trap and you're getting settled into a different area or whatever. So there's, there's always new people getting into it regardless of what the fur market does. And remember we trap for so many different reasons other than just the fur market. So uh, hang in there guys that do rely on a a paycheck uh, to trap. It's going to be tough for a while, but uh, it's one of those things that we don't have a lot of control over. So we do what we can and maybe, maybe you adjust your trap line based on uh, your expectations but uh, we will come out of this at some point and uh, if if you believe that that some point is sooner rather than later then you probably want to have some fur to be able to sell right I mean it's a good be a good idea to have some fur to sell when we come out of this and uh, the market comes back you don't want to be waiting uh, waiting around for trapping season to uh, to be able to actually catch some fur to take advantage of of a rejuvenated fur market and some high prices, so uh, just just something to keep in mind. Um, news, uh, there, boy, there just is not anything else going on in terms of trapping news in the trapping world. Uh, Paul Dobbins is coming out with a, a book at some point. Um, he was very kind to uh, mention my book, Walter Arnold, Main Trapper, on on Trapper Man, and uh, I'm I'm gonna try to get a hold of him, see if we can't get him on for an interview to talk about his new book when it comes out. Uh, that might be a, a few months away. Um, Alaska Seldens, Tyler and Ashley Selden wrote a recent uh, blog post on on uh, Ashley's blog. That was really interesting. So if you're not familiar with them, they are they were stars in the TV show The Last Alaskans. Awesome show. If you haven't been watching it, you better get on that. Um, but they they wrote in a, a post uh, a couple a week or two ago about what it was like actually behind the scenes filming the show, and it's pretty amazing. It was a really long post. They got into detail on a lot of different things and, and different aspects of filming the show, and it really gave you a a look inside on on what actually went on. It was really neat, really interesting, and and uh, it gives a much greater appreciation for what they had to go through to actually get that show um, on the air. So I suggest you check that out, AlaskaSeldens.com. 
Fisher killing lynx. I did a podcast on that quite a while back. Um, uh, boy, it was at least, it must have been a year ago, maybe a little bit more than that. And uh, about the whole phenomenon of Fisher in Maine and northern Maine uh, actually killing a large number of lynx. Very, very interesting thing. There's a lot. There was a lot of debate over that, uh, a lot of doubt in people's minds as to whether that actually took place. But there was a research article that was published in 2018 by some uh, wildlife biologists here in Maine that uh, that kind of lays out the whole story on what they found. And one of the listeners to this show actually got a hold of. Uh, another podcast that they listened to, the Lone Star Outdoor Show, and uh, kind of mentioned this whole idea of, of the Fisher Killing Lynx thing. And um, the, the Lone Star guy actually, um, I think his name is C- uh, Cable. He C- Cable actually interviewed Scott McClellan, the, the wildlife biologist who was the author of this uh, study. And so that was really interesting. If you want to check that out, Lone Star, uh, Lone Star Outdoor Show podcast, and they get into to pretty good detail on it. It's it's you know it it's a long drawn out interview. It's maybe not uh, the most captivating thing, but it's really it really is interesting stuff. So uh, so you may want to check that out. As far as this summer, no convention, no Neil Olson Trappers Weekend that I know a lot of us were really looking forward to. Uh, no national conventions, any of that sort of thing. So uh, I talked a little bit about, you know, doing, trying to do something in lieu of that to, to sort of uh, not really fill the gap, but kind of give us give us all a little bit of uh, semblance of that sort of community feeling that you get from going to conventions. I had a really neat suggestion. I thought about this too a little bit, but some a couple of people suggested that we do some sort of like, a live chat or Zoom call, something, something along those lines, and so I'm really thinking about that uh, later this summer. I'm thinking maybe that's that's something I would be interested in doing. It, if you want to participate in that, let me know if you think that'd be cool. I think it'd be really neat to get listeners of the podcast uh, together and uh, maybe just kind of get to know each other a little bit more, uh, talk trapping. You know, we, a lot of us don't really have people to talk trapping to, uh, you know, in our, in our, our tight circles that, that, uh, we live in. So in a lot of times, you know, you go to convention and it's like, wow, everybody there is talking trapping. That's what, you know, that's what they're here for. And it's just an amazing thing. Uh, so, so for those of us who are missing out on that, essentially everyone missing out on that this year, Let's try to recreate a little bit of that. So if you think that'd be cool, um, let me know, jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. And uh, we'll, I'll think a little bit more about it. What I was thinking is, so it would be something like a Zoom call where, you know, you can, you can call in on uh, audio or video, uh, you know, both audio and video. Uh, so you can have your, your laptop or whatever in front of you and have the camera going and and you can be visible or you can just call audio only or if you can just go in and be muted and you can just kind of participate and just sit there and listen in if you're shy and you don't want people to see you on camera or or whatever you don't want to talk you could just kind of listen in as part of the audience so and and 
<clears throat> I, I've used Microsoft Teams at work quite a bit, so I'm assuming Zoom would be the same way, where there's a there's a chat feature where you can actually if you don't want to talk you can actually put stuff in the chat as well so that's something that I'm I'm kind of bouncing around and the you know the only way I think we can really make it something that that's a, a big benefit to people is if several of you are willing to to kind of share some things and and participate um, I, I I don't know. One of the one of the listeners that emailed me had some suggestions of like you know maybe different people could uh, could provide some you know spend a few minutes talking about a certain topic or whatever. Um, maybe there's a product that you uh, that you just got or that you use you think would be interesting for people to check out. Maybe there's a trapping tip or a technique that you want to share with somebody. Maybe you want to talk about what your plans are for the season and bounce that off some people and and get some ideas. Um, maybe uh, I don't I, you know maybe we could do some question and answer um, depending on who's participating and what their expertise is. We can kind of figure out you know different people that can answer certain questions, uh, or we could just wing it and and bounce stuff around. But it, it would be nice to have some if we do this, it'd be nice to have a little bit of a, uh, an agenda or something and know what we're getting into. So we can kind of, um, make it, make things go pretty smoothly and, uh, and orderly and kind of get, uh, get a lot of value out of it. So still thinking of that and, and let me know if you get any other ideas and, and you want to sort of, uh, work on that or you want to participate and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it more and maybe we can plan something. All right, so tonight's episode, uh, we are just going to do a little bit of reading from Walter Arnold book. So if you have ordered the Walter Arnold book, uh, if you got it on Amazon, you probably already have it. Have a lot of great feedback. A lot of people are really excited about this. People have started reading it and are just really into it. So thanks for that. If you have bought this on Amazon, please go back and leave me a review. We need some reviews. So we had a bunch of people purchase the first few days, and it boosted it up in Amazon's algorithms, and it was like number 17 or so in hunting books for, for a little while, and it's dropped back down, drop, 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 drop. Um, and and I think one of the things that we need is reviews to, to kind of boost that up a little bit again, get more people seeing this book. and. And uh, show this book showing up in recommendations when someone buys a hunting or trapping related book. Um, it would be great uh, to have to have this kind of boosted up in the rankings so more people can check it out. So if you if you haven't left a review, please go ahead and do so. Actually, I don't even know if we have any up yet. So please leave some reviews. That would be great. If you haven't ordered it, check it out. Amazon.com. Just search for Walter Arnold Main Trapper and you will see it. If you sent me a check, um, I've not cashed any checks yet. I'm going to get the books. Uh, they've promised the books will be here on Wednesday. They better be. I'm kind of upset. It's been taking forever to get my books. Um, so as soon as I get the books, they're going to go out to you. Um, and if you have not and you'd like to order one uh, of copy, physical copy, and send me a check, just email me, jrodwood at gmail.com and and uh, I'll give you my address, and we can hook that up as well. So 
Um, thanks again, guys, for all the support. If you have not yet purchased the book, shame on you. Support the Trapping Today podcast um, and check out a really awesome book. I think you're going to love it. So uh, go ahead and, and order that, Walter Arnold, Main Trapper. So last week I ordered, or I ordered, I ordered, geez, I'm, I'm orders on the brain. I'm trying to promote this thing, man. I'm, I get to sell some books. <laughs> I've worked on this for like two years and uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of hours. So I kind of have a number in mind where I want to be as far as book sales um, to make it actually some of the effort pay off. And I'm about halfway there. So um, we're getting there. But anyway, please buy a book if you haven't. So I'm going to read a little section of the book. Last week, I read one of the initial stories. So it's split up into three sections. Again, uh, book one, Trapping Adventures. So those are uh, stories from Walter Arnold's Wilderness Trapline. And I did read part of one of those stories last week. Uh, book two is uh, the species, the fur bears, and it talks about <clears throat> otter, mink, uh, fisher, beaver, uh, all different fur bears that Walter Arnold trapped and his observations, bobcat, and so on. And then book three is the trapping tips, techniques, methods, that sort of thing. So this week I'm going to read a little bit I want to read one of the uh, fur bear sections. And we're going to read the one on Fisher just because I think it's pretty neat. It's called the Maine Black Cat. So Black Cat is a, a name that uh, trappers traditionally have used uh, for the Fisher. I've actually never heard them called Black Cat before I read started reading Walter Arnold's stuff. Um, we just call him Fisher, but... Um, yeah, anyway, it's a, a really interesting little uh, history of a species. And, uh, you know, some uh, fishers were over-trapped um, way back in the day. They weren't very common. And they, um, it, it for a lot of years, you, there was no open season on them in Maine. And the populations recovered to a point where uh, people started trapping for them again. And of course, nowadays, I think we probably, based on just general observations, we probably have more fisher in Maine or as many fisher in Maine as the state has ever had. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, we're at an all-time high. Um, that The habitat's just perfect for them. The trapping pressure is way down. So um, all, all, uh, all systems go for the fisher population. So we're going to read here um, just a little bit of uh, the first couple paragraphs are kind of my little overview on on the main black cat story, and then we'll get into Arnold's uh, Arnold's article. The Fisher is one of the most interesting fur bears around. Somewhere between a marten and a wolverine, he's vicious for his size, but doesn't get big enough to pose a threat to much more than house cats, porcupines, and in some cases, believe it or not, Canada lynx. Fishers do well in the young forests found in farmland reverting back to pasture, and regrowth after timber harvest, both of which are common in the northeastern U.S. these days. Fisher populations are currently healthy and abundant in most places, except on the edges of their range, which is quite a departure from the past when their numbers were very low in most places. Personally, I'm more of a marten trapper at heart, but in much of the forest land I trap, timber harvesting has made a habitat more suitable for fisher, and the black cats have become more abundant to the detriment of marten. 
So I've done my best to adapt and have had a great time trapping Fisher on the northern main trap line. Fisher are fun to trap and their pelts are beautiful, particularly if harvested when prime. In this article, which was published in two parts in Furfish Game Magazine in 1959, Walter Arnold relates his lifetime experience of experiences with Fisher, which spanned a period of time when the species was in a far different place than it is today. It's a great history on Fisher trapping and species management, with a few interesting observations and stories thrown in. So here it is, the main black cat, first published in Furfish Game, November and December 1959. The Fisher, often called Black Cat and sometimes referred to as Pecan or Penance Martin, is the largest of the weasel family in most of its range. It is said that this animal inhabits North America as far north as Alaska and Great Slave Lake and does not extend south of the 35th north parallel. It sometimes reaches a length of 4 feet. Some specimens are nearly coal black in color, while others run to dark and gray. Quite often there are pelts containing more or less brown or reddish brown. Pelts vary a great deal in color. Back 40 years ago, nearly all Maine woodsmen referred to it as black cat. Today, it's usually mentioned as fisher. Fishers love to roam in the solitude of the timber-covered mountains, but also do a great deal of hunting and traveling in the wooded low ground between mountains, where there's usually a greater variety of food items. They are very active and do a great deal of traveling, and will hunt and travel many miles in a single day, crossing from one mountain to another. Many have their individual beats, and the trapper will soon learn where, and in many cases when, to expect a certain fisher or pear fisher to cross the trail when leaving one locality to enter into another. They all may not be the same in every detail of habit, but there are some which do not intend to deter one iota at certain crossing places. Following is the most outstanding example of this habit I have observed. When I go to my camp now, I fly. But back in the days when I used my legs for that purpose, I covered many miles of trail before reaching my objective. Over one five-mile stretch, I followed an old lumber road, which in a few places ran close to the banks of a stream. It was probably around 12 years ago we first noticed a big fisher had a crossing place where the stream ran very close to the road. There was a set of rapids at the foot of which the stream flattened out, and 50 feet away the water became quieter. This fisher always came from the east, reached the stream at the foot of the rapids, and swam across in quite fast water. It probably was doing this year-round, but tracks were visible only when snow was on the ground. Days later, on his return from the west, he crossed the old road near the top of the hill of the long hill two miles away. When he swam the stream, he came out on the shore within inches of the same spot, year after year. Now here's the remarkable part of it. At times during the cold part of the winter, the slow-moving water freezes over solid, but the rapids seldom freeze over. That fisher would come to the same spot and hop into the water. I know he did it one morning when the temperature was 21 below zero. He would swim across the cold water when by going down the shore 12 or 15 feet, he could have crossed on solid ice and never wet a toe. If that was not establishing an unbreakable habit, then I do not know what would be required. When I first became acquainted with this black cat, we were not having any open seasons, and of course, I made no attempt to trap him. Another trapper who often used that road also learned about him, and after I quit traveling there, I'd keep tabs on the situation through this friend of mine. I've not had the opportunity to check up for a couple of winters, but do know that as late as the winter of 1956, this temperamental old fellow was still swimming his same old beat. 
By this time, he's probably passed on to Fisher Heaven, where quill pigs are ever present. There came times when there were open seasons in this section, but neither of us trappers made any attempt to trap this one. He was a source of study and amusement for us, and whether he knew it or not, we were his friends. Probably he would have had to have been trapped in a blind set at the crossing place, which could have been done all right. Surely he was seeing plenty of bobcat and other sets and knew what traps and sets were. Without doubt, he'd been pinched a couple times in small traps, and it's possible that in his younger days, some trapper had accidentally caught him in closed season and turned him loose. Fisher Food Probably the favorite food item of the black cat is porcupine, sometimes called quill pigs. Anyone who's ever removed the pelt from a porcupine can understand what a delicate task it must be for another animal to kill and eat the meat out of one's skin. The question is often asked, how is the kill made? I've never seen it done, so I'm forced to go along with what seems to be common opinion among woodsmen. The fisher is lightning fast, let no one doubt this. With a flashing stroke of the paw, he catches the porcupine, which is hugging close to the ground, under the chin, and flips him on his back. The next instant, the throat is slashed with sharp claws or teeth, and the victim is soon dead from loss of blood. This may or may not be the way it's done. Once several fisher get into a locality, they cut down the porcupine population, and after several years, there will only be now and then a big wise one left. There are those who believe that if left to itself, the fisher would eventually exterminate the porcupines. Let's apply a bit of common sense here. For centuries before white men ever heard of this continent, there were both fisher and quill pigs here, and neither one of them was exterminated. The few of either that Indians killed for their personal use would not be worth considering. Could there have been records kept? I'm sure they would have told us periods of years there are many fisher but few porcupines, and then periods in which there is a scarcity of fisher but plenty of quill pigs. Nature has a way of taking care of such things. Black cat are travelers, killers, and heavy eaters. When they become plentiful enough to cut down the numbers of their food victims and create a food shortage, they must start looking elsewhere for food, even in what should not be their natural habitat. If trappers could keep their numbers down enough so there are never quite enough left to create a great scarcity in their natural food items, they are not likely to stray far from their natural habitats for any great length of time. Most of them will stay where nature intended, back in the big wilderness away from civilization. Along with porcupine, fishers go after, grace, after squirrels, mice, rabbits, birds, and if they can obtain it, they're very fond of venison and beaver. There are many veteran woodsmen whom it would be hard to convince that fisher do not kill small deer. The outcome of a sudden meeting between a full-grown black cat and a few weeks old deer would likely result in the end of little Bambi in just a matter of seconds. Fisher Biology Some interesting informa information found in some notes on the fisher, written by our main wildlife research unit, which was printed some months after the 1950 open season, reads as follows. 13 of 15 male and only 1 of 35 female carcasses were found to have porcupine quills projecting through the stomach, and in one case they had worked out of the stomach into the body cavity. In no instance could evidence of injury, inflammation, or infection resulting from quills be detected. Of further interest, mating takes place shortly after the birth of a litter. The fertilized egg develops slightly and then remains in a very immature state until later winter or early spring, resulting in a gestation period of 355 days. Apparently, the female is receptive for a few days during April. At fur farms, the kits develop rapidly and attain full size by pelting time. However, under some fur farm conditions, the animals do not breed till they are two years old 
and then only 50% of the females produce litters each year. Bad behavior. Fishers are tough, hardy animals. The males are fast and probably fear no other animal their size. In fact, they're willing to concede a few pounds. A few years ago, one of our main fishing game wardens came upon the scene where a large fisher and a big bobcat had met and decided to have it out. A story plainly written on the snow told of a long, terrific battle with plenty of blood and fur from both animals in evidence. The bobcat, which no doubt was the much larger of the two, had finally won out and left his adversary lying dead at the scene. In another encounter, a fisher could have just as easily been crowned the victor. The name black cat, which was generally used back when I was a boy, could be confusing at times. For instance, I well remember the man who lived in our community and had reached the age of physical condition where he no longer was able to do the work, hard work he had been accustomed to doing. He lived, a prudent, lived prudent and saved up a nest egg for a rainy day. He decided to put some of this cash to work for him. <laughs> My wife read this story when she was proofreading the book. She thought it was hilarious. <laughs> He obtained a fur buyer's license, collected a pocket full of raw fur price lists, and was in business. He never trapped and knew little or nothing about furs. He was cautious, however, and bought a few skunk, mink, muskrat, and other furs, and made a few dollars. Way back in the woods, on a lonely country road, lived a wise old trapper. He heard about the new fur buyer and prepared for him. A long-furred black house cat was carefully skinned out and the pelt stretched. The day came when our new buyer knocked at the trapper's door, made himself known, and asked if the trapper had any furs to sell. By gories, replied the trapper. I'm sorry, but I cleaned out all my furs to another buyer ten days ago. However, I do have a black cat I just pelted a few days ago. The pelt was produced. The fur buyer measured it, blew into the fur, and then consulted his many price lists. After considerable deliberation, he ventured the offer of $20. The old trapper hummed and hawed and argued a bit, but finally said, I really expected more, but I'm through trapping for the season. This is the last pelt I have. I'm going to let you have it. The buyer returned home and mailed his purchase to his favorite fur house. In due time, he, returned, he received returns, and the grading sheet listed the pelt. One black house cat skin, value 20 cents. The old fellow retired from the fur buying business. Fisher Trapping in the Mountains. This is some pretty neat history. I was around 11 when my dad finally gave in to my pleading and allowed me to go along on one of his trips back into the mountains. Reaching his camp through the wilderness and over the mountains was an all-day's walk for even a rugged man, and then there was the food and other supplies to last a week which had to be carried in on one's back. I made it and carried my load, but I admit I was about poop when we reached camp that night. During that week, I saw sets made for fisher and fisher tracks, but cannot remember if we really took one. Previous to this, I had seen unskinned fisher and pelts my dad and older brother had brought out. Even back in those days, black cat were not too plentiful, their numbers having been reduced by the wilderness trappers with a four-and-a-half-month open season. With no beaver trapping allowed at the time, this animal bore the brunt of the trappers' efforts during the winter months. Dad had put in plenty of sets just in case any came through. These were mostly in the notches in or between mountains. He'd take from one to three a season. Bobcats were just starting to work in the locality, and there was a small bounty on their tails. It was not long before Dad was picking up one now and then in fisher or bear sets. This, along with all other furs taken in the low ground area, including fox, mink, otter, raccoon, muskrat, and weasel, would constitute a total catch that made it a paying proposition. 
For a few years after this first trip, I made others, when convenient, with Dad. Our home was at the fringe of the big woods, through which one could travel in a northerly direction for 150 miles without coming in contact with any settlement. It was just solid woods, waters, bogs, etc. Naturally, I had my own trap line nearer home, and at 14 had a trapping camp of my own. At 13, I also started working in the lumber woods, and some years took time out to trap or else worked in the woods and trapped what I could on the side. During trips with Dad, I aided in making fisher sets, which included the construction of heavy flip poles, which would lift the animal right up into the air off the ground as soon as it sprang the trap and pole. This prevented a fisher from pulling out of the trap, which is almost certain to happen if given time and opportunity. A caught fisher soon died after being lifted into the air. I really learned then that the struggle it was to fight one's way on snowshoes up mountainsides, over boulders, cross ice-covered ledges with ice hidden by a few inches or more of snow, and over blowdowns always up and up until we finally would reach one of the notches. Never will I forget one occasion after reaching our goal. We could stand in one place and see both sets, and there hanging down from the end of each flip pole was a dead, frozen black cat. There'd been a snowstorm since they died, and the neck and head of each was capped with a couple inches of pearl-white snow. To the leg-weary trapper, that was the very peak of all expectations. Two sets holding two of the most highly prized fur bears in the Maine wilderness. Dad's face lit up as he exclaimed, Walter, we've struck it rich! <laughs> In one way, this taking of doubles in fisher trapping was not unusual. They often travel in pairs or more. I know Dad did it several times, and I remember my brother doing it once. He was so excited he came right back home that night, pulling in around midnight or later. Top price for fisher then was $25. These two were tops, and he received $50 for the pair. That may not sound like much today, but back then, at the time, $25 would buy as much or more than $100 today today being in the 1950s. Author's note, adjusting for inflation, this would be worth nearly $900 in 2020. So imagine that, catching a fisher, $900. $900 times two, dollars in, in one trip around the trap line? Yeah, can you imagine? About that time, I was receiving a dollar a day and board for 10 or 11 hour a day. Board might have been considered at $2.50 a week. A trapper might make a double catch for Fisher and then not take another one for the entire season. That's what happened to Brother that year. It was also possible to go through a season and not even take one. Fisher Decline and Recovery Many an old trapper of Maine can remember how the black cat declined in numbers to nearly the point of extermination. With open seasons from October 16 or November 1 straight through March 1st, and the finest pelts having reached a top of $150, they were constantly being trapped, chased, and shot. The last few survivors had to be smart and probably knew what traps were for, for as well as the trappers who set them. I think every wilderness trapper had wanted to see an annual closed season placed on this animal some years before the lawmakers went into action. Consequently, the closed season was probably accepted more wholeheartedly by the rank and file of the woods trapper than any other protective law ever enacted. I was very active on the trap line in those days and was acquainted with many of the other woods trappers and know for a fact that nearly everyone went all out to keep from accidentally taking one of these fur bears. We wanted them back on our lines again and then have a trapping season within reason which they could stand. As Fisher increased it became more and more difficult to make bobcat and other sets in places where this animal was not likely to travel. 
I passed up many promising places to put in cat sets, and no doubt lost cats by doing so. I know for a fact of many others who did likewise. The average black cat is a tough customer to do business with, and letting one out of a trap is not kid's play. I can attest to that, I've done that twice. As they became more plentiful, more accidental catches were made, and more than one trapper who was not afraid of anything discovered he had his hands full trying to release some of his catches. I do not say there was no illegal trapper trapping for fishers at the time. We would hear rumors of things going on around our Canadian border, and now and then it was believed some main trapper was trying to take fisher now and then. This of course goes with our fish, game bird, deer, moose, and other wildlife laws. The rank and file of the Maine woods trappers were still doing their best to comply with the Fisher Law. Even after they became plentiful again, one trapper told me after releasing one alive, I'll never try that again. I don't want to catch him, but if I do take more, they will be conked on the heads and thrown into the woods. Another trapper who had his experience quit trying to release Fisher and would kill them and turn them over to the Fish and Game Department. During one of his last seasons, it was either six or seven he told me he turned in. That seems kind of crazy. I mean, you can release them. <laughs> Naturally, not too many trappers were in favor of, of trapping and then turning part of their catch over to the state. They felt that once this became general policy, it might not be too easy to open season on Fisher, enabling the trapper to make some money too. This feeling may not have been justified, but it was harbored by many. It was not entirely the Fisher problem that created this feeling. There had been for some years a November season on mink and muskrat legal only during spring. Any honest professional trapper could tell you, if you wished, what goes on under those conditions. Add to this, the general mix-up was an open trapping season on raccoon from October 16 through the fall. There were October coon sets that looked very much like the same sets for mink in November. We who do not like it had a stiff battle, but finally got part of the dastardly situation broken up. Though before we did, our mink and muskrat were nearly exterminated. Maybe now the reader can understand why, as the fisher increased and became plentiful, honest trappers were becoming well fed up with this detestable situation. If the laws were complied with, the trapper in some instances would turn a third of his catch over to the state. I'm sure a fish and game department does not like such setups either. I spent many hours walking the corridors of our state capital, talking with representatives, attending hearings as well as sessions of legislative bodies, enough so I know our fish and game department does not always get what it would like. The black cat is a hardy animal and has few, if any, four-footed enemies. It was not many years before they had staged a real comeback. A person could travel on snow in the big woods, most anywhere, mountains or low ground, and find plenty of sign, not just single tracks, but often real trails in their established crossing places. Alright, I'm going to wrap it up there. This story actually does go on, talks about getting that fisher season in Maine, and a bunch of the, sort of the fisher politics, um of you know fur bear management and trying to get all that figured out but that's just a little sample of what to expect if you uh don't yet have the book walter arnold main trapper um you you get writings like that on beaver uh, mink otter bobcat and so on so anyway guys now it is time for the cots brothers deal of the week in honor of the fourth of july independence day kyle has offered us the code july 4 J-U-L-I, J-U-L-Y, number four, for four times the bonus points uh, at Cotsbros.com. So if you haven't ordered, if you're not a customer of Cotsbros, they have a bonus point system. So it's kind of like uh, Cabela's has, uh, or at least had when I used to shop there. 
and you earn points for every dollar that you spend and you can use those points to order uh, supplies uh, tack down uh, off your next order to uh, lower the cost of your order so um, the the points are just a, a great little system uh, way to kind of build build up uh, when you buy stuff and th for anything that you order between now and July 18 use that code July 4 and you'll have four times the number of points so you're gonna rack up some points really really quick this is a huge yeah I, I, I don't know if Kyle knows how much of a discount he's giving you here. This is a huge, huge discount, um, four times the points. So check that out, July 4, for four times the points at Cotsbros.com. Thanks to those guys for supporting the show. Thank you guys, and can't wait to catch you on the next episode. Keep on talking, trapping. Keep on thinking, trapping, and we'll catch you next time.